Hey, welcome to Afrophiles. In today's episode, we explore the epic of Sunjata and examine how oral tradition can offer important insights into the past. The epic of Sunjata is an oral tradition originating from the Western Sudan, or what is now present-day Mali and Guinea. The epic has many characters, but centrals around the figure of Sunjata, a great king who defeats the enemies of Mali, including sorcerer king Sumanguro Kante, and unites the Malian Empire in the 13th century. There are many iconic episodes in this legend that center on Sunjata's childhood and his rise to becoming king. A central episode is the lion's awakening, in which a young and once crippled Sunjata uproots a baobab tree with his hands. After King Magan Kanfata dies, his counselors ignore his wish for his son Sunjata to be named king. The king's son, Dan Karantuma, is named instead with his jealous and spiteful mother, Sasuma, acting as regent. Sunjata and his mother, Sogolan, are banished to the backyard of the palace by the resentful queen mother. One day, Sogolan asks Sasuma for a small amount of baobab leaf, and Sasuma cruelly taunts her co-wife. Sogolan's son, Sunjata, was born weak and has never walked. Sogolan returns home after her encounter with Sasuma to see her son sitting on his legs. She hits him in a frustrated and desperate attempt to get him to walk, and Sunjata decides that this will be the day he will finally walk. He orders his father's smiths to make him an iron rod. With the rod, Sunjata hauls himself up and even bends the mighty iron bar. He then begins to take steps like, quote, those of a giant, unquote. He easily tears a baobab tree up from its roots and carries it home to his mother. From this point on, his birth name is shortened from Sogolan Jata to Sunjata, and his popularity begins to grow. The epic of Sunjata has been studied as a glimpse into 13th century Mali. Dr. David Conrad, our guest today, emphasizes the centrality of Sunjata's story in reconstructing the history and culture of the region. Quote, Sunjata is credited with founding and consolidating the Western Sudanic Empire of Mali in the 13th century. A very limited amount of information is available from Arabic sources, but these were written a century to a century and a half after the reign of Sunjata. End quote. Although the epic contains traces of historical fact, it is first and foremost a story. There is no single version of the legend, and different lineages of griots recount different versions and episodes. Consequently, social and historical determinants inform variations in tellings, keeping history alive through recitation and live performance. In ancient Mali, griots served as key advisors to kings and were the coveted protectors of the royal family's past. As the griot Jeli Mamadou Kiate told the late D.T. Nyan, I teach kings the history of their ancestors so that the lives of the ancients might serve them as an example. For the world is old, but the future springs from the past. The text version of the epic referenced in today's episode is the landmark bestseller recorded by D.T. Nyan and published in 1960. This was the first version of the story to be recorded and mass printed, and it has been translated into numerous languages as an entry point into Monday history and culture. This episode honors Nyan, a Guinean historian, legendary in his own right, who passed in March of this year. I sit down with Dr. David C. Conrad, an emeritus professor of history at State University of New York at Oswego and the author of a critically acclaimed prose version of the Epic of Sunjata. He is an expert in oral tradition, indigenous religion, and the early kingdoms of the Western Sudan. He also knew Nyan and learned from him over the course of his scholarship, a warm reminder of the giant's legacy. It started out probably as just stories of about this hero uh, and uh, and gradually built up uh, in in terms of its length. Uh, that's we, we can only speculate about that, but we assume that it, it achieved epic proportions 
probably after the 15th, 16th century, it might not have, the story of Sunjata might not have become what we would think of as an epic until the 19th century. We don't know uh, how early it uh, was established uh, in, its, in the form that we know it. There's no way to know that. Uh, essentially, in the, an oral epic as, as, we, as we know it now, uh, is something that's told by a very knowledgeable griot or bard or jelly in the original language. Uh, the one that I'm working on now is 15,000 lines long and uh, is over 100 pages of, of manuscript. The thing to remember is that Tom Sear Neon, who just died a week before last, um, was the first person to introduce the Sunjata epic to the non-Monde world. Uh, so he was in a, a unique position. He was a pioneer. He pioneered the uh, uh, our awareness of the Sunjata epic. Uh, if, if you look at the, the, the general corpus of available variants of the epic, and of course, each variant, each one of the... Uh, versions that we have differs according to the the uh, storyteller according to the person uh, that narrated it if you look at the sort of the general corpus of available versions you'll see usually you'll usually see episodes that are uh, that you become familiar with there's the the early episode is the uh, story of the buffalo woman dokami saw that transforms itself into a buffalo rampages to the countryside King Magan Kanfata and his kinsmen are sitting under a tree in the capital of Niani when two hunters coming from the land of Do approach. They tell the king and his men that they brought a woman from Do who would make a good wife for the king. The king of Do had promised a great reward to anyone who could kill a buffalo ravaging the countryside. The hunters, Ulamba and Ulani, encounter a starving old woman who they learn is the buffalo. Moved by their generosity, she tells the men the secret to killing her in her buffalo form. In exchange, however, the old woman says that when the king offers them a reward, they search for a woman with a hunchback in the crowd named Sogolon Kedju. She will serve as the old woman's spirit double, and the woman says that she will bring greatness to the men. The hunters report that they have brought Sogolon for the king, who then marries her and impregnates her. Her son will be Sunjata, the next great king of Mali. Another very uh, common episode is where the, the dwarf blacksmith ancestor, Fakoli Karoma, uh, is, attends a meeting at the Kamablon, the, the, the big council house. And uh, even though he's very short, he stoops to enter. And Sujata's brother, Mandingbori, laughs at him and ridicules him because he, he didn't need to stoop to enter this low doorway. He's so short. And so Fakoli demonstrates his uh, his Dali Lu, his magical powers, by expanding his size to where he fills up the meeting room and and becomes so big that the uh, thatched cone-shaped roof becomes a hat. That's that's one popular uh, episode. There's there's one that's very popular that occurs in in Tom Sears' version where 
Sujat is born crippled. He can't stand. And, and it's very dramatic how he gets an iron staff from a local blacksmith and, and, and he finally stands up. And his mother goes off singing in Mandan that uh, Sunjata is walking in Mandan. There's another episode about Suman Guru, as he's called. Uh, the, the character, uh, the, the arch enemy of Sunjata in the, in the epic is called Suman Guru by the Bamana and Sumawaro by the Monica, it's just, there are just differences in the way words are pronounced between the two dialects. And the image of Suman Guru, according to the Neon version, is uh, of a terrible, monstrous tyrant who uh, who's uh, very murderous and, and wears uh, clothes of human skin and d- does terrible bad things and lays waste to Mande and leads his so-so army down to conquer it and destroy it. And everything is negative about him. Another episode toward the end is where Sunjata sends a, uh, after after the victory over Soso, he sends a uh, some uh, griots or messengers out to go to the west, to what is now Senegal, to buy horses. And the the king of Senegal, Jolofine Mansa, uh, sends back an insulting message. Uh, sends him uh, 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 instead of sending him horses, sends him a dog or something like that. And and with the insult that uh, he's he's not uh, worthy of having horses, uh, he can just have a dog with it to take with him while he's hunting. These are these are just very uh, what we have in in. Uh, I call uh, Gibral Tomsir Neon. I call him Tomsir because he was a personal friend of mine, and uh, he facilitated my work beginning in 1994 uh, when he introduced me to the Conde Bards of Fatima in Guinea, and uh, and and my books are dedicated to him, and uh, I. I and uh, I got in the habit of calling him Tom Sear when I was staying with him in his home in Conakry in Guinea. But the the version that you're that you're looking at, uh, the DT Neon version, is actually a condensation of the overall epic. Uh, it's it's a, a, a very it's almost a summary of the longer epic. Uh, and uh, what Tom Sear did when he wrote, when he published that first in French in 1960 and translated into English in 1964, was he made it into kind of a novelette. He, he based the events in, in, in that little book on the story that was told to him by Mamadi Kouyaté, a bard in a village called Jelly Bakoro, he he sort of altered the story to to uh, make it appealing to a Western audience. He he uh, he sort of adjusted the narrative. Uh, he wrote it in a in a as prose, uh, which is not the way it's presented in in uh, in, in a performance. The uh, in in the performance, someone like Mamadi Kouyaté when when. Neon heard that it would have been delivered line by line, and uh, there would be a uh, possibly 
very often there would be another griot uh, uh, or or just a member of the audience who would utter encouraging sounds like uh, uh, at the end of a sentence he would say namu meaning we hear you and this is the this is the pattern that goes on during the performance now to your point about the difficulties in accessing the the narrative um, in the um, D.T. Nyane version, we hear the griot referencing the secret nature of knowledge. Um, a couple of times he says, do not seek what is not to be known or learning should be a secret. So can you tell us a bit more about this tension between, I guess, presentation and preservation of knowledge? Yeah, the, uh, the jelly are members of an a general occupational a group in Monday society called Nyamakala. And the Nyamakala are include the, the Jelly, who are the musicians, storytellers, historians, oral negotiators. They were the, the uh, assistants to the rulers. Uh, they were the, the, the people of speech, les gens de la parole. And along with them, uh, among this, uh, at this level of society, were the blacksmiths, the woodworkers, the leather workers, and these people, they were each, each of those uh, professions were sort of an intermediate group in society that were kind of the experts in, uh, in, in uh, crafts. They were the craftspeople and the artistic people and the sort of other main social group in society were the farmers and those were sort of more of a regarded farming was regarded as more of an aristocratic profession you, you farmed you raised crops you fed the population and hunters were also very important so they they made their living say we'll we'll confine the the focus to to the jelly to the griots their living depended on their knowledge on their knowledge of the ancestry of the rulers uh the a a, a mansa or king would have a main jelly a a one that was uh, most knowledgeable and he would be part of the royal court, as it were, if you want to think of it in Western terms. A Mansa, a ruler, would employ this bard and his family. He would provide the, all the lodging and food and clothing and everything required for, for living uh, in exchange for the griot services as musician, storyteller, and the one who could recite the ancestry, the lineage of the king, which is a very prestigious thing. So they would always say they were never telling everything they knew. They, they would always say, there is certain knowledge that I will not share. And uh, in that way, they, they retained their power of the word. It was, it was a matter of t taking care of their, of their uh, livelihood. To turn to another question about religion, um, there are several references throughout the epic to the power of God or the Almighty, um, specifically within Islamic religion. And I was wondering, what is the significance of God's power in this tale? And also, 
Um, could you speak to the difference, if any, between magic forces and God's power? A, a major influence in Monday society, beginning way back, as at least as early as the 14th century, was Islam. Uh, the Islam was introduced to sub-Saharan West Africa as early as the 10th century. It, it took hold first among traders because the, uh, they were doing trade with Muslims who came down across the Sahara Desert. And, and, they, and the trade went back and forth from, from uh, the forest belt in sub-Saharan West Africa and, and the savannah. Uh, and it and the and the camel caravans went north across the Sahara Desert. So the the people that they came in contact to trade with, the the, the which became very profitable for them, these people were Muslims. They were Berbers. People talk about them being Arab, but they were mostly Berbers, North African Berbers. They they wanted to accommodate these strange people from the north. It had this this religion, this belief in in Allah. And uh, they would uh, let them build a mosque in in part of the part of the town, and uh, these they, these these Muslim traders would many of them would settle right down right in the town, like in ancient Wagadu or what what they call ancient Ghana, and they would establish a community there of of Muslims, and then the rulers would would um, encourage them and maybe convert to Islam or at least claim to convert to Islam. And so is, Islam became uh, a very influential in society for economic reasons. Uh, so we we talk we, you hear people uh, historians and, and writers talk about pre-islamic times and and post-islamic times all the things that changed when under the influence of islam but um, that wasn't really it didn't really happen like that it wasn't that that uh, sub-saharan african society changed from being pagans and and infidels as the uh, muslims would call them uh, and and converted to islam and then every everything changed because everybody was muslim it didn't happen like that at all and it's still not like that the uh, local people were very interested in the practices of these Muslims. They saw them doing things that were familiar to them. They, uh, the, uh, in, in traditional uh, system of belief, uh, you have diviners who spread the sand and have a smooth pile of sand in their in their sanctuary where they keep their masks and, and uh, religious objects. And they make uh, archaic symbols in the sand and read the symbols. Um, uh, another form of divination is uh, to stake out uh, a, a, a sandy place outside and put sticks around it uh, in, in spaced out in this sandy area. And then uh, overnight when a, a wild animal comes and walks through that sand, then the diviner interprets the, uh, the paw prints in the sand, whether it's made by a fox or a wild cat or whatever. And so they were familiar with arcane symbols, with, with things that were 
sort of abstract symbols written in in the sand. And uh, when they saw the Muslims' Korans looking at this uh, this script, they they recognized that as this this kind of uh, divination. So Islam became a major influence, but it didn't transform society. It became an influence. But the traditional system of belief in Monday society is very strong. They have a, a value system that is based on their relationship to the spirit world. And in in and let's talk think in terms of traditional uh, Maninka or Bamana society in the village, in a rural village, not one that was influenced by the, the, all the trade in the city and so forth. Their awareness and consciousness of the spirit world is constant. Everything they do in life during the day takes into account their relationship with the spirit world. I'll give an example. Someone who goes out into the forest to gather firewood or to go hunting or to go to the toilet, they take one path out into the, into the bush and they never go back by the same path. They take another path uh, back to the village because there's, a, there's another world that is parallel to the, the everyday material world that we see around us. And this parallel world is inhabited by spirits. They have various names and some of them are mischievous, some of them are dangerous, uh, some of them are very benign and helpful, but there, there's always a, a concern that uh, that uh, they can cause problems for us. So you don't want them to know what path you're going to take. You have to be careful in in the way you, way you behave. And this this was, you know, you we're we're talking about societies that didn't have a police force. Uh, they didn't have a, a uh, an infrastructure that that regulated people's behavior in, in, in like in an official capacity, but these were well regulated societies because uh, of their uh, of the way they related to each other and to the spirit world. There's an episode where Suman Guru creates the musical instruments of Mondan when he's a young sort of juvenile delinquent and uh, doesn't obey the elders who tell him that he needs to go out and and uh, and take care of goat herds and cattle uh, like the other boys. And what he and he's a, a rebel and he invents all these musical instruments. So in this longer version. Sumun, Sumun Guru or Sumawaro is not just a villain. He's a much more rounded character. Uh, Sumun Guru, as a young hunter, is wandering in the wilderness and he meets some uh, the Gina Maga, the chief of the genies, who live in a cave and they have this marvelous magical musical instrument which is this this traditional xylophone the so so bala and in nian's version 
The player of the bala is Balafasa K. Kuyate, and he's the main griot in Tom Sirnian's version. So in this one episode, Sumuoro acquires the Soso Bala by uh, his sister sacrifices herself. His sister Kosia Kante, he, he's, the price of the Bala, he's told, is a member of his family. And uh, he refuses to, to do that. But his sister Kosia finds out about it and goes and sacrifices herself to the genies, goes off to live with them and sort of disappears into their, their world. And in exchange for her, Suman Guru acquires the Soso Bala, which becomes the great iconic symbol of Monday culture and and Malian history and they claim that and there is an ancient very large bala in the village of Niagasola which is the Kuyate main Kuyate village in Guinea and they have a shrine there and this bala is kept in the sh- in this shrine under a white sheet uh, and it's uh, like a holy relic and that has become a um, UNESCO World Heritage Site is officially designated. So then my final question would be, the Epic of Sunjata today, does it continue to circulate in Mali and the surrounding regions? And does it hold, um, does it continue to hold influence within society? Yeah, it does. Um, and and again, let's let's focus on sort of traditional uh, lifestyle out out in the villages where where they they're still really in touch with, you know, they're not they're not uh, going off to the airport and and flying off uh, to Paris to, to to buy goods to come back and trade with. There are still griots in the villages, and uh, and when there's a when there's a wedding. Uh, you have the Jelly Musso, the female griot, come out and sing, and you have drumming and musical instruments and celebrating uh, this uh, wedding occasion. Um, uh, there are uh, entertainments where, where the, the uh, male jelly will uh, re- recite uh they don't. They don't sit down and recite the whole Sujata epic as they know it. They recite an episode of it, uh, say an episode of uh, when Tir uh insisted on going to uh, to attack Jilafi Munsa because he insulted Sunjata. Uh, they'll tell the story of Tiramakantrare uh, because there are people in the audience named Trare. And they get very excited and flattered when they talk about them. If, if there are people in the audience named Karoma or Sissoko, they'll talk about Fakoli, the blacksmith ancestor. And this is very complimentary to the people in the audience. And so little kids, when they're, when they're uh, just in daily life, they hear about Sunjata still. And they, they hear about uh uh, uh, the, the conflict between his mother and her co- co-wife Sansuma Barate and the conflict between Sunjata and his stepbrother Don Karantuman and the, the uh, uh, just these little sort of anecdotal things that are included in Tansir Nian's book about when uh, uh, 
Sogolon uh, Sunjad is crippled. He's lame, and he he's not. He's still still calling around on his hands and knees, and and uh, his mother needs baobab leaves for her cooking, and she goes and asks one of the co-wives for baobab leaves, and the and the co-wife refuses to share them with her, and so Sunjada finally, when he stands and walks in Mandan, and there's this great triumphant accomplishment where he manages to stand up and walk. He goes and finds a small baobab tree and tears it up by its roots and carries it to give it to his mother. Uh, and and this, and so this is a lesson of 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 uh, how to respect your mother and take care of her. And and uh, uh, it's uh, the, the these these anecdotal uh, stories uh, in in the uh, Sujata epic serve as examples of for for young people as to how how to behave what their ideals should be uh it's a lesson in the value system of of daily life the epic of sunjata remains a popular and celebrated part of malian and guinean culture and social life today griots continue to preserve and recount the epic of sunjata and there is excitement around these performances as people anticipate hearing episodes that speak to the heroism of their ancestors Anybody growing up in that society will know about Sunjata and will know, will have fragmentary knowledge of the general narrative. And if if there is um, uh, some occasion, say, here, here, here's an occasion where that I'm familiar with. Um, one of one of the uh, things that happens in in a young person's life, say say a young man in today's society and say the society of the last hundred years is that they'll go away uh, 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 somebody a, a young man in, in from in Mali will have an opportunity to go away and work tapping rubber trees in the Ivory Coast in Cote d'Ivoire or down in in what is now Liberia uh, or they'll go away uh, and join an uncle somewhere who is a trader, and they're they're going off to sort of seek their fortune, and it's a very heroic thing to do. They're leaving, and they're going off to make their fortune, and hopefully come back and provide, and maybe get married and provide for their family and bring money home and so forth. And this is an ongoing process, still happening today. You have uh, uh, workers who go off uh, and cross a frontier into the neighboring country to work. When they're going to leave their uh, their family and their hometown, their home village, it's a big occasion. And this is one of the occasions when a knowledgeable griot, if he doesn't live in that village, he'll be called on and commissioned to come there and do a performance. And that's when you have a large local audience and a major storyteller giving more of an extended performance of the Sunjata epic. And, and one thing to always remember about the Sunjata epic is that the characters in the epic uh, are ancestors of the people living today and they're and and so when they hear when when you have a, a karoma a person of the karoma lineage uh 
in the audience, whether it's a he's a wealthy trader or a blacksmith, when they when they hear the story of Fakoli Karoma, ancestor of the blacksmiths and all his heroic deeds, it's very thrilling. It's very exciting. When people called Trare or Jabate in the audience hear about Don Mansa Wulamba and Damwansa Wulani killing the buffalo woman and taking Sogolan off to Sunjata's father, it's very thrilling to them that they're they're hearing about their own ancestors. And it's just extremely exciting to them. So, but anyway, anyway, the 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 thing is. Yes, the Sujata is alive and well. Uh, you can, you can, uh, if, if you're in Bamako, Mali, the capital, uh, weekends are the big time for weddings, and and you'll be uh, say a small park in one part of the city, or a, uh, even a uh, uh, an open space between uh, two boulevards, and you'll see uh, a crowd of people and this and this bride all dressed up and her and her and the groom and and uh, they'll you'll and you'll hear the the sound the music the drumming and the the music from you know a mile away and you'll have a huge voiced jelly Mousseau, female griot shouting out uh, praises uh, to people in the audience and singing uh, uh episodes from the Sunjata epic or you'll have a man stand up there and with with a microphone and loudspeakers and uh, you'll hear a fragment of the Sunjata epic you know uh Mali and Guinea and that the Monday society, they have a, a, an amazing international music. Uh, you're probably familiar with, with uh, some of the musicians uh, from Mali and Guinea, uh, the famous female singers, Umu Sangare and, 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 uh, and the, the group the great singer, Salif Keita, uh, uh, the, the albino man from, from Mali is world famous singer. You can go, go into any music store and you'll hear a modern version with a, a, a fusion music with some traditional instruments, maybe a bala and a kura and so forth, but with trumpets and, and, and all kinds of other kinds of instruments, guitars, and they're singing about Sunjata. That is so interesting how blended this epic is with even pop culture in Mali. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, Dr. Conrad, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, sitting down with me to explain um, the significance of the epic and um, showing how the epic of Sunjata and even oral traditions more generally offer us really unique and rich insight into both the past and present. Well, it's been my pleasure. This has been Afrofiles. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, Charlotte Bednarski. Our editor is Ed Hendrickson and our music is from Risen. Thanks to Dr. David Conrad for sharing his insights and making this episode possible. 